things early career recruitment the strategies to help you succeed will help you work with generation z with all the information that you'll need it's the jack and ollie show we are and we're up and we're rolling uh, hello and welcome to the early careers podcast with myself ollie sidwell and me jack denton so today we are taking a trip over to the east coast of the US of A. We are speaking to Chris Bishop, who is Chief Reinvention Officer at Improvising Careers. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Nice to be yeah. here. Yeah, yeah great. Well, we're very well, thanks. Um, so, Chris, you're excellent to have you with us. Um, you uh, have gone through a, a range of careers. You um, started as a bass guitarist and played with Chuck Berry. You're a, a TEDx speaker, uh, and you've got a course on LinkedIn Learning. Um, what, what a variety of careers that is! Um, I've got a slight quiz to, to kick us off, so okay, I think you'll know the answers, Chris. <laughs> so I might come to you for uh, the end. So Jack, a okay. little test for you. Yeah, go for Chuck it. Chuck Berry. Chuck so Berry. How much do you know about Chuck Berry, the oh, father God. of rock and roll? This is going to be bad. Isn't <laughs> any songs from <laughs> Chuck Berry? Oh, literally, my worst round is the music round in any quiz. <laughs> Uh, I, I. If you gave me a thousand pounds, I couldn't even draw you a picture that might. I would draw a man. That's what I would draw. So <laughs> well, so you, you, that's, that's a good start. Well, um, uh, Chris, maybe you can give us a couple of songs from Chuck Berry and, and explain how you got to play with him. Yeah. So, um, as you were implying, Oliver, he's kind of the he's sort of the godfather of rock and roll on some level. I mean, he. Ooh. There's a great movie, by the way. Cadillac Records about how he sort of appeared in Chicago in the 50s and all the blues guys were totally distraught. Like, who's this young kid with the wacky loud guitar that's, that all the, the kids really like? Because they, you know, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf had this sort of tradition of Delta Blues that they were doing in Chicago. And he was like the young snot-nosed kid with the loud guitar that the kids love to dance to. So anyway, the uh, 50s. But there's a great record, by the way, um, called The Great 28. Probably not a record anymore. It used to be a double album. but And it's like all of his top hits. So probably the song he's best known for is called Johnny Be Good. Oh, I know that one. Um, right. Yeah, um, yeah. I say, go, go, Johnny, go, go, go. Yeah, classic. <laughs> um, that's a classic, yeah. right? And then other ones that, you know, lots of people have covered. I mean, the Beatles covered his tunes. The Stones, for sure. Um my favorite tune is called The Promised Land, and it's about, it's a story. It's very, uh, I mean, it's quasi-Homeric uh, in its uh, construct. It's just described the story of a kid in, like, uh, West Virginia getting on a bus and going to California mm -hmm. and all the mishaps that he encounters along the way. And it sort of predates Dylan in terms of, like, uh, a story kind of a song. But And we did that with him. By the way, back to the gig. So I played with him in front of 14,000 people with no rehearsal. He comes out on the wow. stage. They introduce him, and he turns to the band. He goes, you guys know these tunes, right? We're like, yeah, Chuck, that's why we're here. Count it off. Go ahead. <laughs> and basically no intros. You have to figure out what key he's in. But the way I got the gig is I knew um, the band leader, the musical director, right? Mm -hmm. So, And that's how it works, certainly in, in, in the music biz. And now nowadays, segue to our career discussion, you know, in every biz. but um, this guy put a band together to do this gig, and he knew that I uh, would know these tunes and 
could be poised on stage without a rehearsal, playing behind Chuck Berry, and that's what happened. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it was cool, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. We did Promised Land. We did that, too. And I was like, hey, we're going to do Promised Land. Yeah. <laughs> I left my home in Norfolk, Virginia, California, <laughs> on my mind. It's the opening line. So. Um, wonderful stuff. Well, um, you're probably the first guest we've had as sung to us mm-hmm. and the listeners. Yeah. So um, well, that's good. a real treat uh, for this one. Well, um, well, so thanks for kicking off with that. The, the, the title of this is all about how to succeed at jobs that don't exist yet, mm-hmm. which I know you slightly alluded to there, Chris. And uh, I think your where you kick us off is around the fact you, you mentioned you've had eight different careers in the 45 years you've been working. So Talk yeah. us through that journey because you, you're now like with a course on LinkedIn Learning, done TEDx, speaking about succeeding at jobs. You know, what, what do you mean about all those different careers and how that's got you to today? Well, so I, um, I describe myself as with sort of a made-up term. I think of myself as a nonlinear, multimodal careerist. Um, you know, implying that I've done lots of different things. And when I say multiple careers, um, the way I qualify it is. There are people, and I have friends, who are still doing some of the things that I did for a living over the course of the past 45 years. I mean, I have friends who are still in the jingle business. I have friends who are still playing in bands and doing records and gigs. Um, I have friends who still work at IBM. I was at IBM for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the sort of revelation for me was that uh, as I began to look at global economics and the way careers change and driven by um, morphing products and service portfolios at companies uh, and driven by innovations in technology, it sort of dawned on me that I was somewhat the poster child for the way today's learners are going to work, right? The kind of kids that your listeners are going to be hiring, maybe. Um, that they're going to do lots of different things. I always cite uh, three sort of data points that I think drive at home. Um, you know, starting with the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, a public sector agency in Washington, D.C., that has no agenda in theory, purports that today's learners are going to have eight to ten jobs by the time they're 38. And not because they have to, but wow. because they can. Yeah. I mean, that's a general number. Obviously, that's, you know, standard mean derivation kind of a um, proposal. Some will have more, some will have less, but that's sort of the option. So it's every uh, sort of um, two or three years. Isn't it right? Yeah. So, terms of service, yeah, it's like 18 months to three years on average. Um, the other three things I like to cite are, um, and this is a quote attributed to the Secretary of Education under Bill Clinton. So, it goes back a ways. And, um, you know, various research kind of points to it, and the number varies depending on who you talk to. Manpower, a big hiring agency in New York, has a different perspective maybe than the World Economic Forum. But the general a belief is that 85% of the jobs that today's learners are going to do, say, over the next decade, haven't been invented yet. Yeah, it's amazing. That's that, right? Right. And they're going to use technology that doesn't exist. And they're going to use the technology to solve problems we don't yet know problems. So that's kind of the big picture, you know, meta perspective on um, what's going to happen to the sort of job and career and workplace landscape. Yeah. And I suppose we could have said the same thing uh, if you went back to any 50-year period backwards, that a bunch of jobs Absolutely. in the future. Absolutely. I remember sitting at a, at a webinar or like a live event in New York, sitting next to an economist, and someone was sort of proselytizing and sharing similar kinds of data points. 
And the economist turned to me and said, thank goodness we're not doing the jobs we did 50 years ago. Sheesh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're right, man. I think totally. well, when you talk about this sort of stuff, when we talk about it, people always want to know, well, what jobs are they going to be? Obviously, right. we don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But it's kind of easier if you, if you work the other way. So if you said in the year 1900, well, you know, the car industry didn't really exist, the uh, aviation industry, tourism in the way that it works. Like you can see that if looking backwards, but it's harder to do it yeah. looking forwards. But that's kind of what people would want to find out now, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the so to the car reference, it's, again, an example I, I love to share is that, um, and this is sort of based on my experience as a freelance electric bass player in New York City in the 80s. Um, but so in 1908, when Henry Ford started rolling Model T's off his assembly line in Detroit, suddenly farriers and blacksmiths got really nervous. It's like, well, that's a great set of skills, guys, but we don't really need many people who know how to do that anymore. You know, we need people who know how to fix internal combustion engines, and we need people who know how to design carriages that are going to be driven by a motor and that will be steered in their brakes. Um, so the the metaphor is that the smart ones of those people with that's those kinds of skills made the transition. They had transferable skills, which today's learners are going to have. Um, and they had uh, a delta, a gap where they had to acquire some new skills. And again, that's a meta model that today's learners and workers, especially early career, are going to have to embrace, right? You've got to take a step back and realize what you know how to do and then figure out where the trending is in the marketplace, the, the, meaning the, the workplace, right? Um, and what you're going to have to learn and figure out, you know, what the skills are and where to learn it and go learn it and, and get the, your next job and then do it again, do it all over again. And, and that's, that's a key to success, I think, in this new 21st century global workplace paradigm, right? Mm. Yes, um, I completely agree. I mean, it's so interesting hearing you say that the stats you kicked off there with. So, a bit of a recap for those that may not have caught it. You mentioned it was 85% of jobs that haven't been invented yet. Which is these are jobs such? What sort of jobs would you say they are starting to come out that are so new? Well, so there? I got one of my um, nicest compliments ever when I gave a keynote address at the Texas Steam Summit in Houston a few years ago, um, and a, gen right. a gentleman who runs uh, Steam, right? So the STEM with an A with arts added, right? Um, this gentleman who runs curriculum for a consortium of private schools, Nord Anglia, actually based in London, um, came up to me and said, I go to a lot of conferences where people say, you know, all the jobs of the future are going to be different. We don't know what they are. He said, but you describe what they are. So all by saying, I think that there are signals and indicators um, that people can be aware of um, to get a sense of how stuff is trending, how, the, how work skills are trending, how businesses are trending, right? Um, you know, it's not it's not rocket science. With all due respect to um, people putting together predictive models, um, and there are lots of ways to look at how uh, workplace needs are trending. There's a great company called Burning Glass Technologies in Boston, and they do real time uh, analytics of job trending. I encourage your listeners to check it out if you're not aware of them. Burning, um, burning and they issue a newsletter. It's called Burning Glass Technologies. Mm -hmm. um, and they 
do lots of surveys, mostly in the U.S., but they're starting to expand globally around what – and they look at like, uh, you know, job uh, marketplace kind of boards. They look at Indeed and Monster and, um, and corporate uh, recs, you know, where are people uh, needing skills, where are companies needing people to do certain skills. Um, so all by saying, you know, if you look at the way products and services portfolios are trending at big companies, look at startup, you look at patent filings, you could look at shows like BBC Click, which is a weekly TV show that um, in- interviews and reviews, you know, leading edge technologies and how they're driving and transforming business models. One of the examples I love to cite is um, nanopharmacy. So that's a burgeoning field, right? Nano, yeah, nanopharmacy. So just for reference, the three chemists who won the Nobel Prize like three years ago won it for developing nanomachines, machines at the nanoscale, right? Mm-hmm. 10 to the minus 9. Um, they are working with pharmacologists to develop implantable and ingestible devices that will deliver pharmacology medicines, right, at the atomic or even you know molecular level say, right to the tumor or right to the wound, wherever it's actually actually needed. So that would mean, just, so that'd mean if you had, like, um, cancer and you needed some kind of treatment, rather than affecting your entire body and it sort of wipes you out totally for weeks or months, it would just focus exactly. on the, Right, cool. Yeah. yeah, it would go right to wherever the medicine is needed, right? And MIT just launched, what's well, about a year ago now, a $400 million brand-new building focused on nano right on the campus. I was actually lucky enough to get invited to the opening ceremony. It's just unbelievable. I mean, it's, you know, eight floors of clean rooms and they're looking at how to apply nano across all kinds of verticals. I mean, certainly drug discovery, but also material science and um, logistics. I mean, on and on and on. So again, the, the meta sort of perspective on that is that these new jobs, you know, jobs that don't exist yet, are emerging at what I call the intersection of historically disconnected disciplines. So places where disciplines haven't necessarily been connected in the past, like nanomachines, mechanical engineering at the nanoscale, and pharmacology, that's a new field. So that's, you know, that's a place where students and companies certainly can can look to develop new products and services, and or students or career services people can help uh, students prepare for that, that kind of newly created job that might be coming in two to three to five years or longer. So one of the things that you could look at if you were, say, working in a career service and you were trying to help your students to try and work out what some of those skills might be required, even if you didn't know the exact job, would be to look at uh, well-funded startups, to look at investment by um, universities and other research institutions, would be to yes. look at consumer trends and how they might be changing large yep. movements in technology perhaps they'd be the kind of yeah. thing you could look at exactly all of that i mean even down to like sort of patent filings and mm-hmm. i mean university r&d labs and where the spend is at big companies in terms of research um for example another you know example i love to cite is quantum so that's a brand new field and companies like amazon and google and microsoft and ibm mm-hmm. are focusing huge uh, numbers of resources and funding on careers in that space, right? So Amazon just announced last week something called Bracket, which is a cloud-based quantum computer 
that you can, you know, pay by the drink. You can access as needed to uh, either learn students, career services people could point students to it to run problems, to, you know, develop algorithms. Um, and they're providing service similar to Amazon Web Services where companies can actually try to run, you know, parts of their business using a quantum computer. And again, the cloud model, so they don't have to ever fix it or upgrade it or wonder whether the dilution refrigerator is three degrees mini Kelvin or if somebody stepped on a wire, you just kind of log in and it's there and they make sure it's working and you pay them to keep it up and running. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely stuff. So one of the things we um, mentioned, we spoke about before when we, when we were briefing and we were talking about what we might um, speak about was um, the one thing that sort of stuck in my mind, which I thought was really interesting, was your suggestion that um, uh, uh, people of this generation, the COVID generation, or, you know, just people, young people now should head for the chaos and look at, <laughs> talk about learning and unlearning. So if you get to maybe explore that and maybe explain what you mean by that when you mentioned it before. Yeah. So uh, if I'll, I'll describe it. And I want to mention up front that I wrote a piece on LinkedIn and I encourage any and all listeners to reach for me on LinkedIn. By the way, I'm a huge fan. I think it's the lingua franca. You know, it's where you're represented in this uh, modern world. Um, and it's where recruiters go. I think it's where colleagues go. It's where companies go. Um, so a little for LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the intersection of historically disconnected disciplines, my advice is chase the maelstrom, find the chaos, go for the mayhem. Simply put, like, go where they don't know what it is yet. And the it being the royal it, meaning, you know, where current businesses or organizations or processes are transforming and or struggling. So, for example, in the, you know, this time of COVID and the pandemic, there are lots of organizations that are, in fact, addressing the challenge and doing well. Walmart just announced this morning, I think they had the best second quarter, like, um, in any number of years. Um, because people are shopping and I mean, online shopping, e-commerce, right, is, is booming. None of us are spending the kind of time in stores that we used to before the pandemic. I mean, education is being transformed. They, you know, University of North Carolina let kids go back for like a week and then videos of them partying in some off-campus site went live and they, they shut it down and moved to virtual. So, I have a nephew who's a teacher, actually, in upstate New York, teaches science, earth science, mm-hmm. and he's trying to figure out what they're going to do in terms of education writ large. So that's a new model. That's a that's yeah. a maelstrom site, if you will, right? And it's happening across lots of industries. I mean, we talked about sort of travel and tourism. So how do you entertain, um, you know, when you can't leave your house? Uh, you know, events, for example. So most major events, I used to go to a lot of events and speak and um, attend sort of MIT events and whatever. Those are all online now. So um, organizations like Verbella, which has a virtual world similar to Second Life, they're mm-hmm. running events in these basically sort of game instantiations where you go in and you have an avatar and you can walk around and bump into people. Your avatar can anyway. So all I was saying, there's lots of opportunity for um, kids impacted by COVID to rethink you know, what they might have been planning to do um, and point their talent and skills and energy and creativity toward figuring out what we're going to do because the world is a very different place than it was eight months ago. I suppose it's also a pretty useful lesson um, because 
I think it's very common when you're younger to have one thing in mind that you want to do. Whereas the reality yeah. is you might need to reinvent yourself several times. And if you can get used to that idea, then it becomes probably more comfortable. There's less resistance. So expectation and reality become better aligned and therefore you're probably going to be have a higher level of well-being. So I think that's what causes a lot of unhappiness is people's reality and expectation. There's a, a gap between those two things. Yeah. I think back to the maelstrom concept. I mean, the idea, I always encourage people, especially in sort of corporate settings, like, um, think of what's next. Like, we, you know, where's there a gap? What do you, what insight do you have? Um, and not every organization, not every management chain is ready to hear from early career employees about what they think should change. But in the right setting, you know, you, early career uh, worker, have a perspective that is special, that is unique, maybe right out of academia or off an internship or whatever. And I would encourage you, the listeners, to to take it forward, like conjure an idea, put together a strategy, um, create some kind of proposal for how the portfolio of the company you're working at might take advantage of the current situation or use technology in a different way or rethink their business model um, based on your perspective as a, as a you know, early career person who hasn't been, with all due respect, sort of jaded by or manipulated by the sort of status quo, say, at an organization that you've joined. I say that with all due respect. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Well, that's, that's great advice to the employers listening. From a, a universities and schools um, perspective, they're the ones that are you know, trying to really galvanize, motivate, educate uh, all the students that they're engaging with to make sure that uh, you know they're teeing them up for success, not only to teach them about um, the, the type of careers they could look for, What's the message there? Because they might be struggling just to understand, um, certainly in the younger space, to understand what an accountancy firm is before trying to find something that isn't even uh, even there yet. So, how do you categorise those, and how do you? What's your advice to the universities and the schools listening? Well, I, so I'm a big fan of humanity. So I, and if I mentioned it, but I have a degree in German literature, of all things. I didn't mention it. Yeah, that's that's what I studied. That was my major in college. Yeah. I had a minor in music, so I was prepared to, you know, go into the music field. But but German lit was my thing. So I'm a big fan of of the humanities and of encouraging people to study across different disciplines and explore areas maybe where they're not comfortable. And I'd say that translates to the real world as well. I mean, so take a course in medieval Irish poetry, maybe or. Uh, you know, study some some esoteric sub intro to astrophysics if you're a English major or whatever. Because the broader implication is um, learning should not be considered like an event that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. My learning is going to more and more have to be an ongoing process. The ability to learn, unlearn, relearn. Um, you know, I think that's that's critical because again the the amount of knowledge being created and the way technology is changing business models and how organizations operate, it's going to require people to, to, again, take transferable skills, figure out what they know how to do and figure out what the gap is, what they need to learn how to do and then learn it and then, and move on. And again, I try to cast it as exciting. I mean, I I know it can sound sort of daunting, but like when I do these workshops at universities, that are called how to succeed at jobs that don't exist yet. I always try to cast it as empowering and exciting 
and say to these kids, you know, you're going to do stuff that's going to look like magic to me. So get to it compared to what where the world was when I graduated from college. I mean, there were no cell phones. There were no personal computers. There were no electric vehicles. Um, you know, there, there wasn't an international space station. Um, you couldn't click with your thumb and communicate with someone on the other side of the planet. So we're going to see stuff like that over the next 40 or 50 years. It's going to be transformational and exciting, really cool. Universities yeah. are going to have to change in order to keep up with that. Have you seen? Have you seen that university? I think it's on the east coast called uh, Minerva University. Yes, for sure. Actually, I know that guy. I had an interview with him, possibly teaching when they were first starting out. Right? Maybe you could um, share with everyone kind of what that is and how that works, because that's for me a pretty amazing concept, and could be how universities might look like in the future. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely connected, more connected to the real world, right? And they there are lots of models like that as well. Um, there's one called UnCollege, which is started by a guy who um, wasn't comfortable going to college. Dale Steve, I think is his name. And it's basically kind of a nine-month gap year program where they teach you more kind of social skills, soft skills, ethics. They focus on community service um, and getting centered. There's, I think there's a certain amount of... Um, self-reflection as part of that uh, curriculum. But yeah, new models. Yeah, Minerva's great in LA. Actually, I was at Caltech and there were a couple of um, people there from that school. And they were, you know, again, um, by, um, they were studying sort of two disciplines, if you will. I think it's one woman was studying astrophysics and like, you know, medieval literature or something. But the idea is to, to cast a wide net, right? To be open-minded, um, and be prepared to you know, learn learn about things that don't exist yet. Learn concepts. I mean, back to the nanopharmacology thing. So no one's ever really done that. Um, but doctors at UC Berkeley developed something called neural dust, which is like a grain of rice-sized device that they implant in patients. So how you develop that? Um, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to learn how to do that. And, and again, working working across disciplines at a meta level, right? So in that particular instance, it's like a mechanic, someone with mechanical engineering training and someone with kind of molecular biology probably or computational biology getting together and putting together a solution that drives a whole new solution and or business model. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. I really like your, your term, uh, learn, unlearn, and relearn. I think that's a really nice little soundbite that I think. Uh, a lot of certainly universities and, and schools um, can pass on to their students because, uh, like you say, all the examples you've given there, those three things are going to happen time and time again. And uh, as you said at the start, if people are going to have eight to 10 jobs by the time they're 38, I think you said, um, yeah. they're all going to be really different. And if I look at my history of different jobs that I had before I went to university, they were all entirely different. I did yeah. a cleaning job, I did a paper round, and I worked in a bar. <laughs> All of those are so different, but you learn different skills from doing those. Yeah. To, you know, yeah. Add to your, uh, your personal knowledge, your skills, your, your everything that comes with it. Yeah. The other thing is to encourage educators, easy for me to say, but um, to, uh, to focus on and point people, learners, 
to the myriad sources of information that exist today. Right? It used to be, you know, that it was the library, and you go to the library and you take out a book or whatever, and um, and that's how you got your information, or you bought a book at the, at the bookstore or whatever. But nowadays, I think of companies like Degreed, so just a plug for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a tool that connects corporate learning management systems with what they call publicly available learning assets. Mm-hmm. And their sort of mantra is, the future doesn't care how you became an expert. Yeah. The implication is, there's lots of ways to get information. And I would encourage, again, educators and, and universities and academic institutions to embrace this new model because it makes for a much richer educational experience for their students. I mean, it's okay to point kids to a TED Talk or to a blog or to an article in New York Times by Thomas Friedman or a book by Stephen Johnson or a video by Carlotta Perez, the Venezuelan economist who talks about technological revolutions and financial capital. I mean, there's lots of, you know, let them take more and more control of their learning because they're going to have to do it when they get in the workplace and they're out in the real world. That's a model um, for learning that will apply to them their whole life. Yeah. I think what people really want though is, <laughs> is somebody to help them curate the sources of where they should go to start finding, just to sort of get them started. Because the internet's an amazingly powerful tool, but sometimes if, if you don't know something exists, you, you, you don't even bother Googling it. So yes. I think that can be one of the things that's quite tricky. It's almost, uh, it could be overwhelming. It's hard to know where to go. Yes, no, I agree. I mean, so the segue is my future career toolkit, which yeah, is uh, I think fits in perfectly to this, right? But it's sort of how I um, how I codified navigating these multiple careers. Hmm. So um, I got asked to give a keynote address to kick off kick off a series of uh, senior week activities at my alma mater, a small liberal arts school in Vermont, New York State. You know, one of the states in New York, kind of in New England. Um, and so over the years, as I've navigated these careers, to varying degrees, I've sort of reflected on how I did it. Like, what were the common traits or the common processes? So as a result, I put together what I call my future career toolkit. And to your point, Jack, about like monitoring and managing the deluge of data, I mean, the middle tool is called Antenna, um, which is sort of about guidance about how to do that. But So shall I describe the toolkit just briefly, how it works? Yeah, I think that'd be brilliant. Yeah, I think that would be actually really, right. really useful to everybody. Yeah, and it's it's the core of this LinkedIn learning course that you'd mentioned. The LinkedIn learning course is, is called Future Proofing Your Data Science Career. And while it's focused on data science, um, and I think is interesting, uh, sort of the, the prelude is sort of backstory and uh, how we got to now and everything from the anti-Kithra mechanism to uh, Charles Babbage, some esoteric references for your listeners. Um, but it's the, the, the three basic tools, which are the core of this LinkedIn learning course, I encourage you to check it out, um, are voice, antenna, and mesh. So the voice piece is uh, it's actually an ideation exercise to help people, students, um, career services people, maybe resources, whomever, um, help students, in this case, figure out, you know, what's what are their core proclivities? What are they interested in? And we use triggers like, uh, what's your favorite movie, TV show, book, even game, like if you're into Fortnite or World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. and use that as a way to figure out you know, what it is that really resonates with you about that particular trigger. The second piece is antenna, which is 
where you try to focus in and build a framework or a grid for where conversations are going on around that topic, mm-hmm. right? And it's and putting some temporal guidelines around it as well. So to your point, I mean, I, as I say in my course, you know, the, the great thing today is that there's lots of ways to get information. The bad thing today is that there are lots of great ways to get information. So it's managing the deluge, right? Yeah. Um, so we put together sort of a framework. And I'll give you an example. So my voice trigger is a movie, Blade Runner 2049. I'm into future tech and culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the attendant antenna tr- um, sources, if you will, in my grid are things like BBC Click, the TV show I mentioned before that is a weekly program on emerging technologies and uh, business applications. Mm-hmm. Another show I watch is called Bloomberg Technology. Another TV show of all things that's on daily. That's sort of the entertainment tonight of Silicon Valley. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like you know they're gushing around Tim Costello and uh, you know what he's going to do after he leaves Twitter. But they talk about innovation, technology, and business. Um, certainly, I read the Wall Street Journal. There's a website called Futurism. They publish newsletters. The MIT Technology Review is a quarterly magazine that also publishes specific newsletters on topics like crypto assets and AI and space. Um, so then the third uh, tool is Mesh, which I think of as a 3D data visualization tool, your network of networks kind of thing. And it's figuring out, based on the antenna analysis, these sources, right, who the actual people and companies are where these conversations are going on. And the the, the action item for that is to track down these people on LinkedIn or on their website or um, you know, if they're an academic, maybe they had, they're on the university's website or whatever, and reach for them and introduce yourself. Get on their proverbial radar and build out your network so that people know who you are. Now that you've discovered sort of what you're interested in, where you where your passion is, what you want to follow in terms of a career path. So that's simply put, that's kind of how, how it works. Okay, so it's an overview. It's figure out what you're interested in. Yeah. Once you figure out those topics, go to places that are sources of information about those things so you can start to learn more and develop your interest in them. And then connect yep. people, connect to people who are involved in that space. Yeah, in that space. And I guess that kind of all builds into it because once you start following someone, you either connect to them or you just follow them on LinkedIn, you'll start consuming their content and you might find a new source and you over time you will refine that and sort of find your way through the path. So that could be a good way if you are a young person or you know, you're know you talking to young people in terms of how do you help them get there. It's start with what you really like, whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be, yeah. you haven't got to think of a career. It's just what you like, what interests you. Exactly. Right, cool, yeah. This kind of makes a lot of yeah, sense yeah. to me. Yeah, and because again, the, the net net sort of the end of that whole process is it's a numbers game, right? I. One of the examples I cite is direct mail, and some of you listeners may or may not even know what that is, but back in the old days, right, sort of marketing in your mailbox, if you sent out like 100 postcards, the general um, response rate, if it was one to three people who got back to you, that was like a good number. So the other adage I use is in New York, we used to say as a freelance bass player, right, getting the job is the job. There are so many talented people around you know, you got to track down a producer or an arranger or a composer or a songwriter or whoever thinks you're cool and hires you to, to do something. 
Um, and that's back to the voicing. You've got to really be clear about what your unique value prop is. What is it that you bring to the conversation, To in this case, to the job, right, to the opportunity, um, to the job rec uh, criteria mm. that will make you the desired candidate? Yeah. And I guess as well, you also don't need to be too I, – I, I'm just suggesting you have to be too focused on having a super sharp focus on what your thing is. It can start off kind of blunt. And as you go through your career and you develop it, it becomes sharper and sharper and more focused. Because I think sometimes people try to be the finished product from day one when actually you're a work in progress, right? Yeah. And I would say, you know, you're a work in progress your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> the whisk is sounding like someone at the end of their uh, employment career. But I mean, it's going to morph and change over the course of your whole life, kids, you're going to do lots of different things back to the earlier adage, you know? Um, and it's, it's, so don't feel like you got to get locked into one thing because again, the, the meta, the sort of meta perspective that I would encourage career services people and students and even academics to keep in mind is that the portfolio of products and services of innovative companies, um, is changing so fast that they want to hire people who can help them uh, innovate and change and, and deal with marketplace changes and addressable opportunity. Mm. At the end of the day, that's what it's about, right? Like it or not, it's business, right? It's yeah. someone's got to generate attributable revenue. So Wall Street's happy and shareholders are happy and the company stays in business and on it goes. So the, way, the kinds of people that draw, drive those kinds of business models, kinds of workers, employees, are the ones that can connect dots in interesting ways that come up with ideas that are maybe not um, traditional, um, that can combine disciplines in new and interesting ways. Um, so I would encourage, again, listeners, to that's that's the model. That's mm. And the rate and pace is only accelerating, right? Yeah. The days of working at IBM for 30 years are gone. That model is done. That is not happening anymore. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Well, uh, I'll uh, I'll try and do a, a, a brief recap before Jack uh, gets a chance to ask you his special question. Um, uh, in fact, before I pass it to Jack, I'll probably uh, ask you, Jack, for your favourite German word. So I'll come to you in a sec, about Jack. Oh, I've got, as a, I've got as a bit of a um, So <laughs> I think you used to say that people are going to have uh, eight to ten jobs before the time of thirty-eight. So the ability to learn, to unlearn, and relearn is going to be increasingly important the faster the, the world moves um your advice is to head for the chaos um and this this concept or workbook i think as you put it uh, around you know trying to find uh the, the voice exercise trying to find the start of something that resonates with you um then look for your sources of the, the trigger your your antenna trying to build that out um build that your your knowledge and insight in those in the area uh, and then connect with those people that um, you'd like to connect with, add value to them in terms of sharing material um, and almost set yourself a target. And when you started talking about it, I, I thought how I would implement that. And I'd probably set myself a target of trying to reach out to three or five new people per week because it's a, it's a very manageable thing to do. And you're going to get some knockbacks and people aren't going to always say hello, but you're going to f- find that maybe one out of those five um, would come back to you. So. Um, that's how I personally would implement it. Yeah. Um, so I think I've covered everything there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's great. Well done. Bravo. 
<laughs> um, so, so, uh, so, Jack, what is your, given uh, Chris um, had a degree in German literature, what's your favourite <laughs> German word? Well, I'm not sure it's a very literary word, but uh, I like the word um, Gesundheit. Which is, I was going to say, that's the one I thought of. <laughs> which is, <laughs> um, which yeah. to our non-German speaking listeners is... Bless you. You know when you sneeze? Someone sneezes. Like, yeah. Probably, I, maybe that's not the exact translation. I'm not sure. Chris probably knows much better than I do. <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah. Yeah. God bless you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good, yeah, good have you health. One, have you yeah, got yeah. one, Ollie? Uh, mine is Calgamy. Calgamy? Um, Calgamy. Yeah. Which is chewing gum. Oh, Calgamy. Uh-huh. At least I hope it is anyway. I, I've, I've been using it uh, all the time and people <laughs> get me weird when. I asked for the cow gummy, and they're like, what I like, are you talking I like about? the German word for In my head, phone. that is an English word. <laughs> <laughs> an English word, yeah, yeah. Do you know what they call their mobile phones? <laughs> they're, they're handy. They're mine handy. Handy, handy yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I feel like we've come out with some pretty rogue uh, word there. I think, Chris, you might have a better word, given your uh, skill set and... Um, I was thinking, like, um, I think it's ausgezeichnet, which is, like, excellent. That's cool. Um, so, shall I ask a special question, Ollie? Yeah, go for it. Everybody gets asked this question, uh, Chris. Okay. But, uh, All right. So, is there anything that we haven't asked you yet that we should have asked you? Um, that's a good question. That's a special question. Um, again, back to what I'd sort of implied before, but I, I think the the net net meta message from me would be, you know, like, should kids be worried? Mm -hmm. And I would say, no, I would say you should be excited. You should be thrilled. You're going to do stuff that has never, ever been done before. We're at a seminal time in history where technology and global communication are enabling innovation and collaboration and creativity at levels we've never, ever seen before. Um, both from a business and an artistic perspective. I mean, people are using AI to write pop songs. They're um, using crypto assets to disintermediate central controllers of how value is stored and distributed. I mean, to be, you know, to be honest, I'm a big fan of the Facebook Libra idea. I mean, at the end of the day, the banking system, as, as good as it is, right, central banks, that model, someone in control, while it gives sort of credibility and trust, it disintermediates a whole swath of the population. And again, when you view it as just value and how it's stored and distributed, there are lots of options. So I don't want to go down a, a specific target or topic area, if you will, but I, I'd say, you know, be excited. <laughs> lovely well thank you so much for coming on this show Chris it's been really really wonderful uh, it's been some really great stuff there and I'm sure everyone's going to learn bags of new things thanks Chris I've been Jack and I've been Ollie and that is the Early Careers Podcast Done. see you next time bye bye